in the absence of a cultural myth, the individual will spontaneously create a personal myth through their dreams. There is a part of your psyche that needs stories to orient what you do in the world. I study the patterns of the universe. The the Talking about your life, fundamental principles, philosophy. What is and what is not true? Those who know themselves. Being better every single day. Hello once again and welcome to the Think Girl podcast where personal development meets real life. I'm your host Ruben Chavez and today I'm speaking with Eric Godsey. Eric is a uh, a really interesting dude. I'd encourage you first off just to check out his Instagram if you're curious about, you know, what kind of what kind of person he is and what he talks about and read some of his captions. I think some his captions are some of the most insightful and thought-provoking on Instagram. And that's how I came across his work, actually, was through Instagram. And, and a mutual friend kind of connected us. But that's what got me interested in what he's up to. Eric describes himself as a student of the psyche, myths, and dreams. And so he studies cognitive science, union psychology, and um, evolutionary psychology primarily, to kind of help answer some of the big questions in life. So given that background, naturally, I was attracted to his perspective and his take on the world. And it touches on some of the ideas that I've personally been thinking and thinking and writing about for, oh, I'd say the past maybe six months to a year, few of which I've actually shared publicly on social media or or my blog. But these ideas have to do with how to be in the world, which I guess by itself is nothing new because that's what personal development deals with fundamentally. But what I've been interested in and, and actually what Eric what Eric does is he takes a more mythological and psychoanalytic approach to this question, I'd say. And he believes that life is fundamentally a story that we're telling ourselves and that the keys to manifesting our potential and living in the world effectively are really to understand what kind of story or or myth we're telling ourselves and also to learn how to be consciously engaged in the telling of that story and also learning how to adjust that story in a way that's beneficial for us and also hopefully for the world at large. One of his core kind of guiding questions is what is the overarching myth of your life that you're acting out either consciously or unconsciously? And so in this conversation, that's kind of what we explore. We we touch on the scientific and psychological and also the metaphysical reasons um, as to the importance of this question. And it's it was it was a really engaging conversation for me. I loved the conversation. It was honestly one of my favorites I've had up to this point. And I, I really hope to have Eric on again because we really only scratched the surface with with this conversation. But nevertheless, I think you will find Eric's point of view fascinating and really insightful. I hope you like it. Let me know what you think. Here is Eric Godsey. You know what, man? I, I thought we could just kind of uh, start by by talking about, you know, what you're up to in, in life. Like what's important to you and what are some of the, the things that you're kind of focused on right now? 
So kind of the main thing that I'm focused on at the moment is studying mythology in a way to help me contextualize what my ayahuasca experience was because I have dabbled in mushrooms and LSD and DMT and um, a plant medicine called Wachuma and Vilca, but ayahuasca was such a different level of intensity and visions and experiences. And I feel really called to study mythology so I can understand the archetypical images that the psyche produces in those hallucinogenic states and to be able to share them in a way that then offers practical, pragmatic steps that the everyday person can take to integrate like the wisdom of those experiences. And the book I've been reading really deeply lately, I actually just finished and then just restarted reading, and I've never done that before, is Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. So that's one of my main things. And the other big thing is basically parenting my inner child in a way to make him more heroic. And that's manifesting through how I work out, um, how I relate to you know the opposite sex and relationships, and how I relate to the people that I work with at work. That's a, a lot of stuff that I want to I want to kind of get a little bit more fine resolution about because that's a good intro. And I want to back up just one step and like for people who are for the uninitiated, let's say. What is, you know, because I, I don't have any direct experience with, with psychedelics, right? And um, I, I, like I was telling you, I love listening to your experiences and kind of how you articulate, you know, your, your experience and, um, and your takeaways and, you, and your insights that you've gained from, uh, from hallucinogenics and psychedelic drugs. But before that even, I'm curious how you got on this path, like what? How did you start, to, you know, you, you, you told us what's important to you and what you're focused on. And that's really, that's really interesting. And I want to get into that more. But how did you arrive at that point where you're interested in mythology and you're interested in these psychedelic experiences to, to, as, a, as a portal to kind of understand yourself in your life? Yeah, man, that's a great question. And it goes back to my childhood. I think I know why. Okay, so when I was like maybe in second grade, uh, this boy and this girl in my grade started an Egyptian mythology club that's, you know, weird a, a, as it is, and they wouldn't let anyone else join it. And so there was this weird, like, they were almost being like bullies. And so I, in spite of them, created a Greek mythology, like, reading club, and nobody joined, but I just started reading Greek mythology. And my dad actually had a pretty decent amount of books in, like, his personal library. So I started reading Greek mythology in spite. And then he started to introduce me to Norse mythology. And I don't know what it was, but it just, it caught something in me. And I read basically every book that they had on it without really realizing what was going on in my life at the time. Now I kind of understand with hindsight, but I, I got really big into um, atheism and I, and I wanted to understand every argument to basically dissuade someone of believing in God. And I did that for like, you know, 10 or 15 years up until I was about 19. And then um, I was really good at basketball in high school. And then I tore my rotator cuff when I was a junior. I'd been 
scouted by Northwestern University um, as a sophomore unofficially. And so I thought, you know, that was my that was my life path. That's what I was going to be. I was going to be a basketball player. And when I tore my rotator cuff, um, I couldn't play anymore. And my mom was taking a online college course on philosophy and she started to tell me some of the stuff that she was learning. And it just, it fascinated me. And then from about the age of 17 until about 19, I got really into philosophy. And um, when I was a freshman in college, I started smoking weed for the first time. I hadn't really done any drugs growing up. I, I drank a little bit when I was a senior in high school, but it didn't really do anything for me. But I started smoking weed and I just kind of had this very deep intuition of um, I needed to shave my head. This was during the summer and I need to leave um, all the friendships that I had in Texas and go visit my mom in Washington state. So I drove the 36 hours up there at the beginning of the summer. Um, and my goal was just to read philosophy and work out. And the day before I was to drive back home at the end of the summer, I found a podcast between Joe Rogan and Aubrey Marcus. And I didn't know who either of those people were. And um, they were talking about something called ayahuasca. And I just had no idea. I didn't know anything about psychedelics. I didn't know what ayahuasca was. And they told this amazing story. And I was just like, people like this are alive. Like there are people out here that think and talk like this. And so then I Googled, what are the best Joe Rogan episodes to listen to? And the first thing that came up was this guy named Duncan Trussell. So I downloaded like five or six Joe Rogan episodes with Duncan Trussell, and each of them are like three hours long. And I listened to every single one on the 36-hour drive from Washington State back to Texas. <clears throat> and they got into everything psychedelic, Hinduism, philosophy, um, Terrence McKenna, Alan Watts, just all these amazing ideas. And by the time that my car pulled up to my home in Texas, I was a new person and I knew I wanted to try psychedelics. And I knew that the reason I wanted to try psychedelics was to deepen my philosophical interests in like what the world was and what life is. <laughs> and then a couple of months after that, I had my first mushroom experience and that was basically the start of, so around that time, I read a book called Pi Call and Tai Call, which are two books written by a man named Alexander Shulgin. And he was a chemist who, he is actually the chemist who created MDMA, but he created probably about 400 different types of psychedelics legally. Like he had a, a license from the DEA because he used to work at a really huge chemical company and he created, I think he created a, what is it called? I think he created Roundup or something like that. And he made this company hundreds of millions of dollars. So they gave him basically a free pass to research whatever he wanted. And so he started to research how to make all these different isotopes or different iterations of the classic psychedelics. And then what he would do is he would give them to himself and his friends and then they would basically all write trip reports and then talk about it afterwards and then i just knew like this is what i want to do so i would st so i started taking psychedelics i started writing trip reports basically almost like a philosophic journalist and that turned into my website that eventually turned into 
my life's work, which is now deeply um, embedded in depth psychology that was created by Carl Jung as a way for me to understand the psychedelic experience. And that's just spiraled into my life now. And lo and behold, I work at the company that Joe Rogan and Aubrey Marcus created. And now I work with Aubrey Marcus and, you know, it feels like full circle. Yeah, that's awesome. That's that, that's so cool that you're able to connect with the the very individual who inspired the journey. Yeah, man. And not only connect, but in a in a deep way. And it seems like you guys have developed a, a good friendship as far as I can tell. So that's really nice. Yeah, yeah I got to say, man, you know, I've I came across your uh, Instagram randomly one day, just completely randomly. Well, of course, you know, I mean, <laughs> however random random can be on on Instagram. <laughs> I, I was really attracted to to first of all your bio, cognitive psychology and evolutionary psychology and analytic psychology. It's like these are the things that I'm quite interested in. And but I have to say that you really were the one who influenced me to start reading Jung. Yeah. And I, I you know I think a lot of people are familiar with with quotes from Carl Jung and familiar with Jung as a as a figure of, of history, you know, as a, as the father of analytic psychology, maybe even. But I don't think a lot of people have read Jung. And what was what was really helpful for me in in following you and your recommendations was you you recommended two primary books on Jung that would help you kind of. You you said that if you read these two books, I think it was two books, that you would know more than like, you know, 99%, 98, 99% of people. And those books are Man and His Symbols and uh, The Collected Works of Jung, I, I, I think, by, by Joseph Campbell. And so funny enough, you know, these are kind of compilations of his work. and and But I think that's a really cool way to approach the work. And, and I bought those books and I've been it's reading awesome, them. Man. And it's very interesting, man. I think... This is part of what has opened up a new level of thinking for me, I would say. It is based in mythology. And I want to get into that word a little bit because I think that people can dismiss that as as fairy tales and as not having to do with the modern world. But it's really relevant for a variety of reasons that that I've come to understand. And I'd like to hear your, your take on it too. But I guess to begin, there's this quote from, from Jung that... I think I don't know where I heard it. I'm, I'm sure maybe it was on your podcast. Maybe it was it was reading. But he says everyone acts out a myth, but very few people know what their myth is. Yep. And you know, you talk about this, and you talk about that everyone has a myth. And and I want to ask you when you say that everyone has a myth, mm-hmm. what do you mean exactly? And, and and also, why is it important that we know what our myth is? What does that have to do with our modern world and our modern lives? Absolutely. That's a great question. Whether or not you are aware of it, you are living through a story. And most of us are living through a combination of multiple stories at the same time. And it's why we think we have ADHD or it's why we feel depressed or confused because we have conflicting stories. So it's a technical fact that in order for you to do any behavior, there's a part of you that is calculating what is more important than other things. So for you and I to record this podcast, we had to sift through a million possible options this morning to arrive at this moment. 
And from a cognitive psychology standpoint, you have to have a evaluative structure to choose between what actions you take. That structure comes from your stories. And most of us, so all of us come into the world with ingrained biological stories. So an example of that is if you hear a really loud sound in the room that you're in, every single mammal on the planet will have the same response. You orient your face towards the sound, you hold your breath, your eyes get slightly larger, and you basically prepare to either fight or to run. That's a biological instinct that manifests as a story, and the story is, don't die. So we come into the world with a couple of instinctual stories that are hardwired into us by our genes and the fact that we have a body. But then on top of that, the moment we're born, we start to get taught stories by our culture and by our parents about how to be in the world. If you touch a vase and your mom is worried about you breaking the vase, she is going to react in a way where it teaches you vase touching is bad. That's a part of a story. And you know, the story is I want the love and protection of my mother. Like that's ingrained in us. And we all have goals. We all have dreams. We all have aspirations. All those come from stories. And the really beautiful thing is that if you look throughout history, every culture has mythology. And the mythologies were the stories of the cultures that guided the individuals about how to act and how to be. And the really beautiful thing when you read someone like Joseph Campbell or Carl Jung is that you see there are patterns within every culture, cultures that had no access to each other, who develop myths that are saying some of the same things. We live in myths now, and a lot of the myths in our modern culture are not healthy. Like the myth of consumerism is you'll be happy when you buy the next thing, the next new thing, the next shiny thing. You are not enough until you get the right makeup and you get the right partner and you get the right house and you get the right car. Our souls are not attuned to thrive under those stories. If you look through modern mythology, you find that the stories that the soul flourishes under is the hero's journey, which is an archetypical story that both Campbell and Jung identified as the common story that's being shared in every culture across all recorded history. And the beautiful thing, man, is the fairy tales that lasted today, as we see mainly in Disney movies now is kind of where it comes up the most. Those are all potential hero journeys that people are attracted to unconsciously as children because a part of their soul wants to find the story that's going to help them become who they could be. And just to give some background, the part, so you dream. And I don't think people take enough time to think about what is happening when they dream. When you dream, there is a part of your mind that is literally creating a phenomenological world for you to experience within that is so indistinguishable from your waking life that most people never lucid dream. What the fuck is that? Like that is the most mysterious, amazing thing that we take for granted. And the beautiful thing about psychedelics is according to Jung and according to people like Joseph Campbell and my intuition is that 
the place that dreams arise from inside of your psyche is the same place that gets magnified when you take a psychedelic and you're entering into a waking myth-making process. And that's the beautiful thing about psychedelics is that you can actually manifest dreams in waking life and they tell you things that you don't know you know. Like like people who pay attention to their dreams, every once in a while you get a very clear dream that tells you something that you didn't know that if you acted on it actually improves your life. And so there's this idea that there is a thing inside of you that is other than your ego, that is watching your life, that is trying to help you become who you could be, and it speaks to you through symbols. And that can be in dreams or the psychedelic experience and a bunch of other techniques and practices that you can use to amp- to amplify the unconscious mind. That's super interesting. And, and, and I think you're right about dreams. I think that people don't take the time. I, I think people brush dreams off often and, and, and don't take them as statements, sure. as the statements that nature provides you. I think that's worth, worth talking about. I, I want to bring up something really quick, just because every step of the way here, I know there's a chance that we can lose a, um, a certain number of people be, for sure, I, I said a lot because there. just by the by um, virtue of the of the nature of the things you're saying, you know, we're talking about dreams and mythology and symbolism and and like I said before we started this conversation, I think even just you know three four years ago, if I would have heard a conversation like this, it's possible though not certain that I might have tuned out a bit because I, I don't exactly know the relevance that this has to my immediate life. But, it, and, and it's not obvious, but it once grasped, I think it's super, super profound and, and important and th- probably the most relevant thing to, to our lives. But so I just want to bring up one thing here and, and I want to get your, your comment on it. I was just recently actually ex- um, started reading this book, um, Metaphors We Live By. Have you have you heard of it or, or read it? Um, I've read like the intro, maybe the first chapter, but it's fascinating. That that's roughly what I've read so far. So you know, I, I, and this is the first time really speaking about it out loud to another human being. So, in it, uh, uh, excuse my ineloquence in advance about what I'm about to say. But you know, it's it's it reminded me of some of the things you're talking about, and it kind of grounded some of the things in a in a little bit in a way that I think maybe maybe some more people can grasp and. Like it was, it struck me. One of the first arguments in the book is like, you know, we act in ways that are framed by the implicit metaphors that we kind of tacitly accept. And so, one example of that would be we think of argument as war. Okay, so you think of the, the idea of argument, right? You think you think of arguing with somebody. You say things like, "Oh, you know, your claims are indefensible," or he attacked every weak point in my argument. You know, his, his criticisms were right on target. All of these phrases have to do with war, right? So the idea that argument is framed as war, argument is war. That's the metaphor that, that, we, that we live by and that we tacitly accept in our, in our culture, right? And so because of that, we act a certain way when we're arguing. We, 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 we have certain attitudes toward it. But, and this is where I thought it got really interesting, the author said, think about, you know, try this thought experiment. What if the underlying metaphor was something more like argument is dance, 
Yeah. Right. And you had to, you had to, you know, uh, the, the participants are seen as performers and the goal is to perform in a balanced and aesthetically pleasing way, right? In that kind of a culture where argument is dance and you and you respond to the the other person in a way that's more artistic, let's say, or more sensitive, like that's a totally different type of that's not that may not even be an argument anymore. It may be something completely different. Yeah. And so that is just a huge mindset shift for me. And I think, and you tell me if if this is off base or not, but it seems to me that, you know, in some way this is connected to, to mythology because the way we act is rooted in, it's framed around a certain myth, a story, Absolutely. let's say. And, and if we want to change what it is that we do and our fundamental assumptions about reality and about the world – we really have to look at the story and the, the 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 story that's surrounding everything that we do, and it's hard because it's so much. It's like a fish in water, right? Like a fish is very. It's hard to become conscious of water because it's it's all around us. But that's kind of what I took away from that. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think that that's a very good point. Is that the stories that you are living? Are the water that you are in, and unless you cultivate discerning, aware, uh, discerning awareness, you'll say, "I don't know what you're talking about." But that's like a fish saying, "I don't know what water is." And the beautiful thing about the metaphors we use is they are signs of the stories that we are in. And also, my intuition is that the metaphors that we use dictate the images that come up in our dreams. And so, if you see arguments as war you will likely have dreams where you're fighting somebody in the dream because that's how you see some part of you that you don't agree with. Is It's a thing that needs to be fought. Whereas maybe as you develop a little bit more, you start having dreams about marriage or about sex. And that's, that's a symbolic representation of merging with the other, of taking it in and integrating it in a way where you give birth to some new idea. Because truly... The most useful way to see an argument is this person knows or sees the world in a way that I don't, and there is potentially something in that that can make me a more adaptive human. And so if I see this as, like, I like to think of it as almost like gardening. Like, you and I are both sharing the same soil, and ideally we want a beautiful plant to grow. And so you throw down your fertilizer, I throw down my fertilizer, we both pick the weeds that we see the other person's ignoring, and we potentially make ground for some new idea to come through. But I think that that's a great insight, is that if you want a really clear insight into the type of stories that you're living by, pay attention to the metaphors that you use when you speak. Our language reveals a lot about what we think about absolutely um, a certain thing. So, okay, so I don't know if we fully unpacked that, but if you want to just maybe tie that up, you know, uh, put a bow on that, the, the, the importance of the myth, the personal myth is that, it, is that we need to know what, it, what story it is that we're telling ourselves so that we can act properly in the world. So it, 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 there's more there, but can you flesh that out a bit just to put a bow on that? So the beautiful thing is you can look at the myths that have come from the cultures that have influenced our culture. And so that's mainly like Greek mythology, Roman mythology, um, maybe Nordic mythology. But depending on what your ancestral lineage is, you can look at 
the myths that have come up before you. And then you can look at your life. You can ask yourself, what is the quote unquote God that I'm worshiping? Which is like, what is the highest ideal in my story about my life that I'm giving the most energy to? Is it money? Is it power? Is it lust? Is it greed? Is it anything other than being of service to the divine, however you want to define that? Because if you look at the myths from the past, any king or hero that worshiped those gods, those myths show you how that life ends. And it's a tragedy. It's not good. And so you can take stock of your life and look at what is it that I'm doing? What is it that I'm working towards? And then ask yourself, why? There's a really good technique and it's just called the five whys. So ask yourself, what is the thing that I'm giving the most energy and time and attention to in my life? And then once you write that out, ask yourself, why? And then once you write a sentence, ask why? And do that five times. And if you're honest, everyone tends to get down to a root feeling that they wish they had. And it almost always comes from a childhood experience where they didn't feel that feeling. The crazy thing, man, <clears throat> is that anyone who says that they're not aware of the story that they're living or they're not living a story that very likely tells me that they're still in the first story that they created for themselves. And the first story that we create for ourselves comes from when we were five or six or seven and we had some experience where we felt a negative emotion. And then as a five or six or seven year old, we start to put up what's called an internal family systems guards or managers, which are these protectors that we put up. And then these protectors run our lives for the rest of our lives until we become aware of them. And so a really clear example is, let's say when I was four, I was left or I got sick and I was left in the hospital overnight and my parents weren't there and I felt completely abandoned. Well, I've erected a guard that basically is going to dictate the way that I am in relationships for the rest of my life where I'm avoidant. I don't let anyone close because I have the unconscious story that anyone who is close to me will abandon me. And that's just one example of dozens of these stories that we create. And if you don't become aware of them, they will run your life. Um, there's a quote by Jung, and it's that if the unconscious is not made conscious, it will run your life and you will call it fate. And that's really the goal of psychoanalysis, I would say. You know, it's only recently that I, I became aware of kind of the hard distinction between the different types of psychotherapy. And embarrassingly enough, it's like, you know, what we're talking about right here, just to kind of contextualize this for people, is is these are psychoanalytic ideas, I think it's fair to say. And, and this is kind of analyzing the causal chains of your past so you can make sense of the present and the future. That's a rough, a, a rough way of looking at it. But that's different from, let's say, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is something that I talk about and, and that has been, been um, talked about a lot recently. Is, and that's more like something like reframing the events in your lives, the current events in your life, so you can deal with them better, but not necessarily delving into the past. And so I think that's an important – I just wanted to kind of throw that distinction out there for people. I think they're both useful in situation in, in various situations, but what we're talking about right, right here is depth psychology 
and it's kind of delving into the 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 depths of your past to make sense of of your present. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and I think that that's a good point. And um, what I want to emphasize is the the model that I like the most was kind of introduced to me by Viktor Frankl, who uh, created something called logotherapy, which is essentially imagine the ideal future you want and then start to move towards it. And what you will find is that blocks will come up and the blocks that come up in the present moment, the way to unwind them is to look at what happened in the past that created them. And then you can alchemize the present moment with something like cognitive behavioral therapy. But the emphasis is on moving towards your ideal future. Lots of people who get into psychoanalysis just live in the past for the rest of their life. And that's actually not helpful. The thing that I think is the most adaptive is visualize the ideal future that you want to create, move towards it. You will encounter obstacles and the obstacles are almost always because you are running into one of your maladaptive stories that you created unconsciously in the past. Work through that and then continue towards your ideal future. And the beauty there is you only go back into the past when something from the past is keeping you in the present moment from moving towards your ideal future. And I think that's probably the most adaptive way to go about using psychology to help you live the life you want. That makes a lot of sense. And something I'd like to point out is what you just described right there, that process of moving toward an ideal and then running into problems along the way, um, going back into your past, let's say going into the, the underworld, dealing with those problems and coming out and sharing the benefits with, with your community and with yourself, of course, you being transformed, that is essentially the hero's journey. That, that's a version of the hero's journey. And, and so we do this all the time. We, we act out this myth, this myth all the time in different ways. Like, and that's something that, that is such an important realization. It's like once you learn about that, you can you – can, when you learn about that template, you can – kind of observe life and observe your own life and observe other people's lives and and then of course observe literature and and film and understand that they're all talking about this journey in various different ways absolutely every culture that we have recorded stories from has this story as one of their core myths that they shared with their tribe or their culture as a way to teach the individual how to be in the world. Exactly. How, how to be in the world. I think that's a good way of looking at it. Because, you know, sometimes I think about, I have this, I don't, this, is, this is an ill-formed question, but I think about like, what are we doing in the world? Like, what are we actually doing? It, like, kind of what's our, what's our, uh, not like what's our purpose, but what are human beings up to? And one of the, the answers is that I've come up with is like, well, you know, part of it is we're trying to always orient ourselves in the world. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm a new father. I have, I have a nine month old baby and you know, we, I tell him things about the world that I know for sure. Like I don't talk to him about things I'm unsure about. I talk to him about things like this is a table. This is a plant. Oh, look, we're outside right now. 
oh, look, we're eating. And what I'm always doing is trying to orient him in the world. And if you notice how the, the way we talk to babies, I think we're always trying to orient them in the world in, in a way that we can actually manage. And that's really interesting, you know? And then I think the, you know, and then, you know, when someone wakes up from a, from a coma, let's say, or, or something like that, or they were unconscious for a little bit, we, you know, how many fingers are we holding up? What, what year is it? What day is it? Who's this person? We're trying to orient them in the world. And so that's a fundamental thing that we're always trying to do. Science is a way to, you know, that we're trying to make sense of the world and orient ourselves in the world. And, and so that, that's another manifestation of it. But and then even more than that, on another level, we're, we're always trying to, we're always trying to learn how to deal, how to be in the world, like you said, and how to deal with, with problems and, and with chaos. And we're always observing other people to know how to do that. So, you know, I think in part, because that's what religion is, you know, and people, especially modern people are not, are, are not super on board with, with the, with the myths of religion. Um, for, for the most part, obviously there's, there's, of course, religion is going strong in many ways, but I think that the, the, you mentioned that you were an atheist when you were, um, when you were young. And of course, I think I, I think any, most thinking people, most people who think deeply go through at least a period of atheism because it's very difficult to wrap your head around logically and come and, and come to grips logically and accept logically that story, that kind of a story. But once you understand mythology, I think, and, and symbolism in the way that we're talking about here from a psychological perspective, it's, it's a little bit more clear. And what I wanted to ask you was, look, we talked about the personal myth and, and I think that's useful, but what I've just tried to unpack here in my statements is something like a collective myth. Like, what about a collective myth? Is that is that something that's that's useful? Is is it useful to have a narrative about the overarching story of humans in general and what we're up to and what we're doing and, and the direction that that human beings are taking as a, as well as a personal myth? Yeah, I think that that's a great question. So. The word zeitgeist kind of means the spirit of the times. And there's a really great quote in Hero with a Thousand Faces that I've highlighted twice. And it's something along the lines of, in the absence of a cultural myth, the individual will spontaneously create a personal myth through their dreams. There is a part of your psyche that needs stories to orient what you do in the world. So. What you were saying at the beginning, when you're talking about like, this is a table, that's a tree, you know, this is dinner, this is lunch. That's helping someone discern what the facts are, but you need stories to discern what to do with the facts. In the absence of a story, it's just facts. It's just, this is what is, but it's the story that helps the individual choose what to do with the facts. And so in the Bible, the one of the first senses at and at first there was the word and on a very real sense in order for the conscious mind to even begin to do anything in the world it has to start to use language to create a world like if you don't have language as a human you it's it's hard to imagine what you would perceive it would just be like an amalgamation of feeling tones that you would be responding to unconsciously so we use words to create the world that we move in. And then it's the stories that we're told or absorbed that tell us what to do in the world and what religions were. So 
my atheism came from the fundamental misunderstanding that I think most atheists have and most religious people in the modern times have, where they're evaluating religious stories as if they are hypotheses for scientific theory. And that is the fundamental wrong way to look at what a myth is. The myths are stories about what to do with the facts. And so now where I'm at, I don't subscribe to any specific religion, but I'm deeply, I would say I'm deeply spiritual. And what I mean by that is I understand that my ego and the thing that crowns the top of my ego, which is my intellect, is not the master of the world. It is a servant to what I would call my soul or my intuition. And I think each of us has an inner myth that wants to come out of us that would be of maximal healing potential for the world that we are in if we were to manifest it. And it's not something that's got to by the intellect. It's something that's manifested if the intellect becomes a servant to the intuition. And so what I mean by that is like, if I meet someone and I start to feel myself strategizing how to maximize that relationship, I've, I've lost my center. I'm, I'm trying to force something in the world. Whereas if I meet someone and I'm still, I can hear that there's a thing in me that does not feel like my intellect, that feels like my intuition, that will tell me what to do. And then I have to have the courage to listen to it. And I think that one of the core things that a overarching societal myth gives people is this proper orientation of the intellect. You know, you can look at all the great thinkers when they're in their old age. Most of them will have some quote along the lines of, the mind is a poor master, but a great servant. And the idea there is there is something else happening inside of you that is wiser than the part of you that thinks is. And if you orient the thinking part of you to help manifest that deeper wisdom, you have what they call grace in religions and, you know, what the new age people will call the power of manifestation. You know, like if you get out of your intellect's way, imagine that your intellect wants to be the king on the throne and you actually make him a servant to the king and the king is your intuition. You're going to have a pretty fucking beautiful life. That's my intuition and that's what my life has revealed to me so far. I'm always trying to ground things in in something in something else that's that's um, relatable and and that I know. And so, if we're talking about this from a even a you know neurophysiological standpoint, like just cortically, our brains are much the the intellect part of our brains are much newer than the um, than the intuitive parts, the emotional parts of our brains, right? Like like by far it's like that's why we can that's why we can easily program a, a computer to play chess uh, and beat us but we, we can't figure out how to make a, a robot walk through the woods better than a, a, great point. a six-year-old there's parts of us that are wired up and that have been wired up for so long like longer than you think and like hundreds of thousands, millions of years. And those are the parts that we don't even think about, but we think about thinking. And so that's how we know that it's a little bit newer. It's, it's a lot newer actually. And so I think that's kind of what you're, what you're pointing at. If we want to talk about it from a, from a more, you know, scientific materialist standpoint. Absolutely. Like if you take a moment to look at how your brains evolved, the part of you that thinks is like one day old compared to 
the ancient parts of your brain. Like if you take a moment to think about it, our genetic ancestors knew how to move through life for hundreds of thousands of years without language. How do they do that? What we would call the intuition, like there is a part of you that emotionally knows how to be in the world in a way that is so old and ancient and wise. And we've just recently developed the new part of the brain, hopefully to accompany that, not to dictate over it. Because it's such a clear, like, you know, the five things that you should be doing every morning to maximize your health. How many people do it? you know, 1%. And that's a great testament to the fact that the intellect is not the king. You know, there are emotions happening <laughs> underneath you that are so powerful and so old. And, right. you know, if you want to have the life you want, they've got to be properly contended with. Yeah. Yeah. You, you pointed out that, you know, our ancestors moved through life without language. And I would also point out that they moved through life without uh, science and and you know like the um, formal discipline of logic and as modern people we take it for granted that that's kind of a necessity for for living in the world and, and understanding it and you know of course there's 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 massive benefits to the scientific worldview but when it comes to understanding how to be in the world it doesn't help much because it's just a it's a it's a collection of facts and the modern pe the ancestors that we're referring to we often i think a lot of people tend to think of them as primitive and and maybe even less intelligent than us but there's no evidence for that there's there's actually evidence that our brains are are a bit smaller but i i think that you have to take into consideration the fact that we're alive because of our ancestors because of the intelligence and wisdom of our ancestors yeah and also a thing to point out is if you're going to be in a loving relationship with someone for more than a couple of weeks, you know that logic is not the way. Like, I know that anyone listening to this right now, if you're going to be in a loving relationship and you try to only use logic, you are going to be alone. Or, 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 or be in a constant fight, a constant battle. Yeah, I've, that's, that's a very good point. Like, my wife, Vanessa, constantly educates me, educates me, I'd say about that fact, because I, I do tend to want to rationalize and, you know, kind of approach our disagreements through logic. That's kind of been in the past, my, my default, but it is much more useful to same man. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, women are great teachers of that, man, because I think women get it a little bit more than men naturally, that that it's that there's a more integrative approach that has to do with intuition and, and emotion. Yeah. And I think, you know, to just, you know, seal the bow on this point and we can move to something else is that on one level, men evolved to hunt and the hunt is a very logical well, there's lots of intuition accompanied to it, but it's very like focus. This is the one thing. Whereas women's nervous systems have evolved to deal with an infant. And that's a deeply intuitive, emotional relationship that does not require, this is where we need to go. This is the objective. This is how I'm going to do it. This is what I need to bring with me. It's no, this is what I can feel from this other being that can't speak. And I intuitively discern, are they hungry? 
Do I need to hold them? Do I need to sing to them? Do I need to feed them? Do I need to, you know, just touch them? And it's a beautiful- That's a very good point. Yeah, it's the beautiful thing of relationships is we can both teach the other the parts that they don't excel at, and then we become a more whole entity because of it. I want to take a brief moment to talk about one of our sponsors for this show, Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with over 25,000 classes in pretty much any field you can think of. Writing, photography, uh, cooking, even social media marketing, just to name a few. One of the many reasons that I love and promote Skillshare is because their core values of learning and growing are very much in alignment with my own and I'm sure if you're listening to this with yours too. I'll tell you about one of my favorite classes that I've ever taken with Skillshare. It was a productivity masterclass and it was all about creating systems in your life and business. And it was taught by this pretty well-known YouTuber and it completely changed how Vanessa and I run our business. It helped give us our time back by helping us to create systems that streamlined and organized our content creation and our editorial calendar for Fingerl Prosper. Massively, massively helpful. And here's the cool news. Right now, Skillshare is offering listeners of the Think Girl podcast two months free so you can try it out for yourself. Go to Skillshare.com slash ThinkGrow. You'll get unlimited access to 25,000 classes for a full two months at no cost. So it's basically a risk-free situation here. The specific URL that you want to visit for this offer is Skillshare.com slash ThinkGrow. Check it out. Join the millions of other students who are learning and growing with Skillshare. I've used it for a while. I love it. I think you will too. Again, that URL is skillshare.com slash thinkgrow. And now, back to the show. I think what, I, what I'd like to, to get into here, and I want to be respectful of your time here, but I want to um, get, make sure and hit this point, which is, like, what are some, some concrete ways that people can, and I know you, you touched on, on a couple, but if you could just kind of solidify this idea, what are some concrete ways that people can go about uncovering their, their myths, their stories, you know? Um, I would say that it's only been very recently that, that I've been actively, you know, I think you really helped me to start thinking about this, man. You, you, and, and I would say Jordan Peterson helped me start, because I think, I think Jordan Peterson is a cultural figure now that has articulated the importance of myths um, and, and stories in, in a way that is really refreshing. And I think it's, it's really useful. It's been useful for a lot of people, but, but I think you, you've also really influenced me, man, to, to look at what, what are the, the myths and the stories that are running my life. And one of those things, one of the things that I've personally done, um, started to do that I've found really um, revealing and insightful and actually hard to even deal with is taking the self-authoring program that the Jordan Peterson offers. I don't, I don't know if you've, you're familiar, but it's kind of a, um, a way to analyze your, your, your past and your present and your future in, in really deep ways. And I've never done that like in a, in a formal setting, you know, I, I've, I've never really gone into my past and thought about six meaningful events 
um, or, or I'm sorry, six meaningful like um, epochs of my life. I've never divided my life into epochs, you know, and written like a biography of my life thus far. And just doing that, it sounds like self-indulgent, like, oh, why are you writing a biography of yourself? Well, no, it's actually, it's not for anybody, it's for you. And it's one of the reasons is to make sure that you have tied up all the causal chains of your past and, and you are not... And you don't have all these, as you call them, mental tabs open in your mind constantly. Um, that that that's one that's one reason. But in doing this, my point is that I've I've really been understanding more about what kind of life I'm leading and what kind of life I'm trying to to lead. And some of the some of the stories are emerging um, in my psyche as to what I've been telling myself. So I'd like to hear your take on what it is that you've. Oh, what do you recommend to for people listening to this podcast to help to kind of get in touch with with their myths and their underlying stories? The first thing that I would recommend is check out my podcast. And that sounds self-indulgent, but the way that I've created it is to help. I love your podcast. Thank you, brother. Is to help people put themselves in the position of the person I'm interviewing and to ask themselves these questions. And, you know, I've curated those questions to try to maximally elicit, you know, your awareness of what your stories are. And I think the deep, deep questions that get to that the most are, what are the one to three stories that most resonated with you as a child? Write them down. And then tell them to yourself, either write or speak it out loud, the way you would tell that story from memory to a smart 10-year-old like it was a bedtime story. And what I have found with every single person I've ever done this with is the way that they articulate it as if they are telling it to a smart 10-year-old as a bedtime story, if they're telling it from memory. It's not about being factually correct. It's about retelling it in the way that it flows out of you intuitively. That's your story. That is the way that you see yourself in the world and what you're doing. And so that's kind of a passive way to start to play with this idea. But a more direct way is you can start from the present moment and then work backwards. And the first thing that you can do is track what you do throughout a week. Like really look at where you put your time for a week and then put it into categories like how much do you work? How much do you work out? How much do you spend time with a romantic partner? Um, how much do you spend thinking about the past, thinking about the future, watching Netflix, whatever? This is showing you the story that you're playing out. And then you can look at what habits here do I know don't serve me? And you can ask yourself the question, if I had to sacrifice one thing that I know would help me become more of the person that I want to be, what would it be? And then you pick one and then you start to watch it and you start to ask yourself, like, when did I start doing this? What emotion do I feel right before I do this? And what is it that I'm avoiding or what is it that I'm trying to ignore when I do this? And you can just start peeling back the layers. And fundamentally, what you will find every time is there was some event that happened when you were younger that made you feel an emotion that you didn't want to feel. And this habit is a byproduct of that moment. And once you become really aware of it, you can start playing with how to talk to yourself and how to be with yourself when you feel the urge to do that habit again. And 
Um, I, you know, we don't have time to get into it today, but I would love to come back on and talk about this. But there's a thing called internal family systems, which is a really powerful psychological model to think about. There's a wounded child inside of you. And that wounded child has created guards to protect it. And those guards are your behavior patterns, your addictions, and your avoidant behaviors. And you can really imagine, like, as the adult you are now, trying to console the inner child when you feel the urge to like binge watch Netflix for three hours, when you know it's not what is best for you. Like sometimes watching Netflix is a beautiful way to relax with someone you love or just with yourself. But all of us know when we start to do it and it feels like junk food. And that's a moment where you can tap in and you can talk to the little boy inside of you and ask like, what's wrong? What are you avoiding? How can I help you? You know, what do you need to tell me? And I think that that's a powerful way to begin to become aware of uh, what stories are ruling your life. Is a valid way to think about uh, the what you just described, kind of the the inner child that is repeating a habit um, based on one you know uh, one event that happened in your early childhood? It, it is is a valid way to think about that. This is kind of funny, but I think points to the truth. Is it something like? Hodor in Game of Thrones, where he was repeating one one word constantly because of this one event. I, I forgot about that the, the the exact situation, but it was like it had a, a time warp element to it. But that aside, I think it, he was like repeating one word, Hodor, Hodor. Nobody knew why, but it was based on this one event that was that happened a long time ago or in the future, depending on how you look at it, and. It's, it was still a pattern that he was repeating. So that's kind of one way to th I think about it at least. Yeah, and the thing that I would highlight there is what you just did intuitively is you offered up a story to contextualize a psychological phenomena, and that is the basis of myth. Like the reason myth arose was to help us deal with the fact of what our psychic minds are, which are very complex. And you just created a story that you can now use as a tool to understand a part of your psychology that can help you be more adaptive. And that's the point of myth, period. That's the point of what religions were coming out of is to give you a story to understand a part of the psyche that is ineffable, that if you understand this, the story, you can use as a tool to guide how you behave. Yeah. Myths are ways to make sense of the world in, 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 in an, on another level. And I think people get that, but I think where people go wrong is like, yeah, well, People had myths back in the day because they were trying to make sense of the world and they got it all wrong. But as you said, they're looking at that from a scientific viewpoint. Like, yeah, it doesn't describe the world scientifically, but it does make sense of the myths do make sense of the world behaviorally. And so that's a really important thing to um, to highlight and recognize. Absolutely. I, I wanted to ask you, and you've, you've kind of alluded to this, I think, um, at different points, but is there a way you could kind of concisely, you know, sum up, you know, not, not, you don't have to be concise if you don't want to, but, uh, your myth, like what is your myth and what, what is the thing that you're acting out? My myth is I am trying my best to manifest the kingdom of heaven. And that is a metaphor to me. That is essentially, I am trying my best to manifest the potential person in me that I know if I did, it would be my greatest contribution to the collective for healing, you know? And I think the way to get there is to 
speak and act your truth in love to the best of your ability. That seems like it's like you've thought very deeply about that and that it's taken you some time to arrive at that. Absolutely, man. And the beautiful thing is I've been thinking about what it is for years. And then with the help of psychedelics, it just, it was told to me by a higher part of me. And I just knew it to be true. Like, you know, it took me seven or eight years of philosophical thinking to create the groundwork to understand what I mean when I say the kingdom of heaven, you know, and that I think each of us is a manifestation of eternity or the all or whatever you want to call it. And that we come into the world with a destiny, like a seed is destined to become a specific type of tree. And there's a part of us that knows what it is that we are meant to be. And the hero's journey is the, is the game plan that you can use to constantly manifest more of what you are meant to be into the world. And I personally think that the way that we can best help the problems in the world is to become what it is that we're meant to be. Dude, I love it. That's, that's beautiful. I think that's a perfect place to, to end off here. I'd, I'd love to speak with you at some point um, because I have a lot more questions and a lot more things I'd like to bounce off of you regarding this. But I think this is a really good kind of introductory conversation, especially because I don't necessarily talk about these themes a lot on, on this channel, but I've been doing a lot of a lot of different kind of thinking and and self-work, I'd say, over the past, well, over the past couple of years, and only a fraction of that has made it onto um, my actual, um, uh, like, the content that I put out for the public. Um, but I think this is a really good introductory conversation because I think this marks the beginning of a different kind of um, output from me. And that's why, partly why I wanted to speak with you because um, I wanted to thank you for inspiring that in me. And uh, I just really admire you, man, and, and, and what you're doing out there. I think you're articulating your truth in a really impactful manner and in a way that is, is really striking. And I think you're a really interesting guy. And so I, th I think a lot of people will find value from this conversation. And, and that I appreciate you taking the time to be here. I truly appreciate you saying that and for you seeing what it is that I'm doing. And it's awesome to have conversations like this because it it's easy for me because I used to be the the epitome of the skeptic. All logic, no intuition, no heart, no woo-woo, no psychedelics, none of this shit. And it's easy for me to forget how that worldview looks. And it's really great to reconnect with open-minded people who are rooted in the groundedness and it, you know, it helps me rearticulate these things that I've been thinking about in a way that can connect to, you know, the everyday man and woman. I appreciate it. And I um, hope we can do this again. I intend to. Absolutely, brother. Thanks for listening. You can find the show notes for this episode and all other episodes on my website at thinkgrowprosper.com slash podcast. That's where I put all the links and resources mentioned in each episode. It's also where I put the outlines of topics covered, which is a really good way to refer back to episodes in the future. 
Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, I'd love to hear about it. Feel free to leave a review on iTunes with your biggest takeaway. I make it a point to read all the reviews. You can also screenshot this episode and share it to your social media along with something you learned or found interesting. And tag me in your post because I'd love to see what you found interesting. Say hi and thank you for your support. 